Thank you. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? That was woeful. How are you doing, the lot of you? Are you all right? You made much more noise when you were getting coffee, right? So, you know, there's something up whenever I ask how you're doing and uh, you're, you're quiet. It's good to see you all. As I said, my name's Dave. I lead the team here at Central and uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning, open God's word and kind of speak into that. Can I say one thing before we do it? Uh, KC have a whole raft. KC is our kids ministry that's just happening beneath us. They have a whole raft of new leaders on uh, and today is the first kind of wake of that new cycle of stuff happening downstairs, crash upstairs. There's, there's younger and older kids now. And there's a whole bunch of stuff. It's really good. They're, they're walking around in really epic pale pink t-shirts, right? So if you see them afterwards, could you just give them some love and appreciation this morning for all they do, speaking into the lives of our kids in this place. They're not a side story. They're not a less important part of what happens on a Sunday. They're every bit as significant as what we say and do up here. So could you give them some love just when you see them as they'll be walking about at later, absolutely knackered, having chased around my kids for the, you know, the next kind of half an hour so please do if you could give them some love that would be great we're going to read from God's word this morning if you have a bible on you why don't you grab it if not the word should appear behind me we're reading from Matthew's gospel and um as Lydia has already said, and as the kind of title visuals were behind me as we posted over the weekend, we're going to be reading from the Beatitudes over the next eight weeks or so. So we're reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and I'm going to read actually the whole lot this morning because I feel like today's the first week, so I'm going to give you like the big brush stroke. Um, and so we're reading verses 1 right through to verse 16 of Matthew 5. So this is God's Word. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So today we're kicking off the series that I hope will take us right the way through the autumn before, dare I say it, we dig into Christmas themes, all right? Sorry, I've went early. There's going to be someone who's already thought about their Christmas tree, some sad person. You're bringing the rest of us down, whoever you are, right? But... Uh, for the next eight or so weeks, we are going to be teaching our way through the Beatitudes. And in truth, 
I'm quite nervous about it, um, having spent the kind of last number of weeks kind of thinking about this series, trying to plot the road ahead in terms of content. I found these words have wrecked me over and over and over again. These 16 short verses, wrecked by the challenge, wrecked by the invitation of it all. And the world loves a big announcement, doesn't it? Like the world in which we live, it loves a big announcement. Like if you go to a card shop now, it, I feel like there's a card for everything, right? Congratulations on getting new tires on your car. Like whatever, right? I feel like there's cards for everything in the world, right? On the personal level, we've become all too used to the big announcement of your new relationship or your engagement, right? Uh, you're pregnant, you've had a baby, gender reveal parties. Who does gender reveal parties? Please never let this be a church of people that do gender reveal parties, right? New job, new house, new post, right? Of course, everything we do has to be backed up with the obligatory social media post or it's not official. And of course, smash that like and subscribe afterwards, right? We love a big announcement. And then on this bigger level, right? Not just the personal, on this bigger level, we have things like tech announcements, right? Like Apple will have a whole conference to release a new iPhone, which is fundamentally exactly the same as the last one, except it now has another camera lens, right? That's kind of how it goes now, right? So you get tech announcements, new box sets, like think of the promo that goes into like big box sets now, football transfer news, on and on and on, right? We love a big announcement. It's such an everyday part of our lives. And then there are those times when the big announcement comes and it's not what we were expecting. Things like the, Bre- the Brexit referendum result, the Queen is dead, and just last Friday the announcement of the government's mini budget and the last week's unfolding constant chaos that ensues when an announcement comes and it's not what we were expecting. And just sometimes they're not what we were expecting, or even maybe sometimes not what we hoped. And I say that today because the content of this next series is really the wider narrative of the whole Sermon on the Mount, okay? We, we read them in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, these three chapters, and they get spoken into this time of great desperation and longing for change, okay? The audience that was receiving them as they're spoken, there was a longing there to the listeners, right? There was a desperation there. Jewish people are under Roman rule. In fact, most of the world is under Roman rule. And though the Romans did bring some good things, right? Roads and law and governance and things like that, right? They steamrollered everything and anyone who didn't think and do as they desired. Like the reality of the Roman Empire was they just steamrollered their way everywhere they could go. And so there's this deep longing for something to change. It's why by the time we get to the Easter narratives that we normally read around that time, that name Messiah, right? Whenever you think about Palm Sunday, Messiah, Palm Leaves, all of that, like it's feverish, right? By the time Jesus rides into Jerusalem, like we're now at fever pitch level about the change that is coming. The king is here, right? Roll out the palm leaves, celebrate it, right? The king has come, Messiah, 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 right? It's loaded. The people are loaded. One commentator describes the moment as they are pregnant with expectations, They're pregnant with expectations. 
It's maybe best expressed, I guess, for me in the words of that old hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I mean, here is the first verse of that hymn, right? We sing it very often in the Advent season. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. And it goes on like that, the remaining verses, right? Expectations, heavy, heavy expectations. And so here is Jesus. And here in many ways is him speaking his manifesto. And the language is loaded, right? The the language of the Sermon on the Mount is loaded language. We're talking king and kingdom, right? It's hard to talk about king and kingdom without there being heavy expectations on your words, right? Like the people are now way up here. I mean, did you see the Queen's funeral, for example, right? The pomp and the ceremony and the grandeur of it all, you know, all the sort of weird things that happen around a moment like that, right? Like it was way up here, like high society stuff. Expectations were right up here. And yet when Jesus speaks, what follows from his mouth will fall well short of the people's expectations. The truth is that when he begins to speak, what's going to flow from his mouth will fall well short of their expectations. The king who will go to the cross, the kingdom that's going to look like what we read over the next number of weeks. It's the announcement, but it's just not what everyone expected. It's a big announcement, but it's not what anyone expected. And here's the thing, right? I say that today because we too come at our lives and our relationship with Jesus loaded with expectations too, don't we? Like, you don't follow Jesus without expectations in your life. We carry them around with us, right? We're aware that the world isn't all that it should be. We're aware that we aren't all as we should be. We are hungering for more, hurting for this sense of potential that's in us that doesn't feel like it is ever quite realized. There's an itch in there in the human heart, in your heart and in mine, for a life, just something that is beyond ourselves, isn't there? Like it's in there. It doesn't turn off. John Mark Comer will write in one of, our, in, in one of his books that, uh, that our longing is infinite, but we are finite. There is this thing in us that longs beyond ourselves. And into our hearts and in our minds reaches these words of Jesus. Some of the greatest words that were ever spoken, and they reach deeply within us. They search us. And in truth, that's why we're here. That's why we're going to look at them over the next number of weeks because we want these words to search us. We want them to challenge us. We want them to change us. We have this sense around church uh, as we meet as a leadership team and, and talk about what's going on around church that there is this deepening hunger in the community at the moment. Quite simply, there are no other words quite like these ones of Jesus. For a hungering people, for people that are longing. Maybe for you as you come today with expectations. Maybe life isn't looking like you hoped it would be. Maybe you're hurting and you're hungering from the world as you see it right now. You come today with expectations and we're going to try and read into and speak into the words that will search deeply within us. These, and lots of ways, the Beatitudes are their own thing. They're not law. They're not commands. They're not statements. They are pure gospel. They are the words of disruptive discipleship and they are the invitation into Jesus' kingdom now and future. 
And so as we do it today, what I wanted to do was just really briefly try and give like a bit of a brushstroke of like what's going on with all of them and then try and dig into the first of those Beatitudes today as we kick off this series. And as we start uh, today, I want to say that I think what we're trying to say is that the series, this series is about contrast. It's about becoming a people of contrast and it's about becoming a person of character. We're talking today about contrast and character. And the first of those is contrast. And I think one of the things that marks this kind of time in the world in which we live, right, is this sense of perpetual crisis, right? I think we just live in what feels like a time of just perpetual crisis. Uh, Mark Sayers has a book called Strange Days in which he kind of characterizes the moment we're in as just that. We live in strange days, right? His words are about the constant upheaval of the world in which we live. And obviously around us here at Central, where you are this morning, are kind of major offices and government institutions all around us in this part of Belfast. And I feel like for the last six months, right, as I've made my way to work, some sort of protest has been taking place somewhere around this building. Like, I mean, every single day, like there'll be some kind of union somewhere around one of these buildings with people outside generally looking disgruntled and now cold as the winter sets in, right? I feel like it's just perpetual protests, right? As I woke up this morning, just a section of what you might describe as breaking news, you know, red banner stuff on, on BBC News that were in my feed where the cost of living crisis, the Ukraine crisis, the crisis in Iran, the energy crisis, the mortgage crisis, right? And that's just what I could find in my feed this morning in about a 30 second glance, right? It's just crisis, I just feel like we live in perpetual crisis. It's why there's almost times where it's like, can't look at the news. Like, just have to stay away from Twitter. Can't watch the news. Because it's just like one thing after another, after another, after another. From stuff that feels way out there to stuff that feels very, very close to home right now. And generally speaking, our approach is to come at the challenges in our lives with this sense that if we could just fix this or if we could get rid of that or, or this oppressive regime, if we could just pay for this or that, if maybe we could get ourselves out of this mess, right? It feels like that's the approach so much of the time in our world, right? We just fix it, right? If we could just fix it, we just do this, that, like we'll get ourselves out of it. We can work our way out. Mark Sayers terms it like this. The world is becoming a construction site where walls, physical, cultural, and spiritual, are being simultaneously erected and torn down, all in an effort to keep the chaos at bay, to reach for the purity of a utopia, to find a sense of home and security. We live in this perpetual crisis. And what we're reading today, the Beatitudes, it teaches into the crisis, not just the crisis, but every crisis. But the thing is, it doesn't do what we normally do, right? Which is taking him at everybody else and everything else and all the problems that we perceive are way out there somewhere, right? What Jesus is saying is that the things that need to be fixed aren't out there. They're in here. They're in here. He speaks into the crisis and he says, the things we can fix, the things we need to change, They're in here. The emphasis is on us. It's on our formation. The counter to the crisis is a people of contrast. 
And Jesus comes at this topic with a word that we know, that we know well, right? The word is blessed, okay? Or blessed, as we said, as, as we read it, okay? Now, the last time I critiqued Christians using the fire emoji on social media, certain members of this church have taken it upon themselves to send me fire emojis on a weekly basis, okay? So I daren't get there with the word hashtag blessed, right? But in 2022, if you really want to be scorned on social media, just add hashtag blessed onto anything that you write, okay? That picture of you cozied up in the winter sun with your coffee, hashtag blessed, right? That sort of thing, okay? You and your other half, hashtag blessed. New clothes, car, whatever, hashtag blessed, right? If you want people to hate you, right, do that, okay? One New York Times columnist said it like this, okay? There's nothing quite like invoking holiness as a way to brag about your life, but calling something blessed has become the go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment whilst pretending to be humble. Fish for a compliment, acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited, or purposely elicit envy. Blessed, divine, or supremely favored. I didn't even know that was a thing. People write people actually write divine or supremely favored is now used to explain that coveted TED talk invite as well as to celebrate your grandmother's 91st birthday right blessed blessed that's how we use it but here's the thing how Jesus uses it couldn't be further from how we do how he uses it couldn't be further from how we do those words Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Do those sound like the the sorts of things we would put hashtag blessed on as we tweet and we comment about them? Of course they don't. They couldn't be more different. Now, the word Jesus uses, okay, is, is this Greek word, makarios, okay? And that's kind of the term that he uses throughout all of the Beatitudes, makarios. And it's got a number of different interpretations. Actually, it's quite hard to kind of tie down. Blessed is the one we normally read in the Beatitudes, the versions that you and I would kind of use. But it also means happy or congratulations or to be envied, right? It means a number of different things. And yet none of those seem to quite line up with what it is Jesus is getting at, do they? Like they don't, like they work, but they don't seem to really say what we think Jesus is trying to say. I think probably Elizabeth Rondell Charles gave the fullest meaning, and this is how she put it. Blessed is a heart in harmony with itself, at rest, content, satisfied, full of all the music of which human hearts are capable, from the soft murmurs of content to the thunder of the many waters of ecstatic rapture, a heart in harmony with itself. I think that's it. You have a heart in harmony with itself when you're poor in spirit. A heart in harmony with itself when you're meek. A heart in harmony with itself when you're persecuted. You have a heart in harmony with yourself when you live out these values that Jesus is speaking into. Or as one other commentator puts it, this is an invitation to flourishing. Blessed is an invitation to flourishing. Or as I might say it, we are the way we are meant to be. When we are poor in spirit, those who mourn, meek, those who hunger and thirst, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers and persecuted. 
The thing is, though, right, that the picture of flourishing, it runs so totally against, hostile even, to the picture we have of flourishing most of the time, right? And we might think that that is the case now, right? Like somebody that kind of exhibits those things now would be very different to what we see as like a blessed life. But actually, it always was, right? Speaking in the fourth century, the early church father, John Chrysostom, he wrote, All the things Christ blesses are so contrary to the accustomed ways of men. They are the very things which all others avoid, right? So don't try and say that like, well, now we don't do it that way. That's the fourth century, right? People have never wanted, never wanted or seen those types of values as the sorts of values to hold tightly. Nothing's changed. The Beatitudes cut across us, don't they? Like as you read those, they cut across the things you want from and in your life, don't they? Historically, for lots of people, they've been too feminine, too submissive and full of surrender for men's men, and too rendering of stereotypical feminine values for many feminists. In other words, they just don't fit for anyone. They cut across us. In fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount could probably be summarized in just a few words from the middle of the chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 8, it says this, do not be like them. The entire sermon, if you want the hack, right, and you want to summarize the whole thing, those three chapters, do not be like them. There's this observation, right, in Matthew's gospel, right at the start of Matthew 5. And this is what he writes. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. See, there's this thing going on here, right? Jesus is holding out these values and they run against anything that any sensible person in that world would ever want. And yet whenever he speaks them out, two things are happening, right? The crowd is right before him, right? They followed him there. And yet he speaks the words to the disciples. Like he sits them down here with the crowd in full view behind them all. He speaks, it's almost like he teaches, but also he keeps the rest of the world in view. In other words, this wasn't just for, this wasn't just commands or teaching for the disciples. This was a universal invite to come and take part. Jesus is looking at the people and the crisis after crisis after crisis that each and every one of their lives and ours will come face to face with and he's calling them to be a people of contrast. This isn't just for the few, this is for the many. We spend so much time screaming at the world to change, don't we? Like I feel like every time I turn on the news, like something in me is going, oh, like it cannot be this way. Like something's got to give, something's got to change. Internally, screaming at the world to change. And yet, Jesus speaks to you and I today and he says it's us that needs to change. And as impossible as they seem, right? And as far beyond us and against all the norms and things that the world around us is hoping for, this is the call of the Beatitudes. Do not be like them. Be the way you are meant to be and you could find a heart in harmony with itself. This is an invitation, right? We can't do this and become this on our own, right? There's not enough strength or willpower or resource in the world for you or I to fulfill the Beatitudes, right? That's the reality as I read it. Like, there's no way I can become all of these things by myself. Like, no chance, right? I'm not even going to try to seek some of these things out, right? I couldn't do it on my own. I couldn't do it at all. 
But yet that's what faith and following Jesus is, isn't it? It's an invitation into the one who leads us to become what we aren't. Richard Hayes writes this, the story of the Beatitudes is not a story about human wisdom, but a story about the power of God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This isn't just a call to live another way. This is an invitation into a whole other way to live. They're about the formation of a people of contrast and an invitation into the life of the one Jesus who forms it in us. But secondly, this is about character. It's about contrast, but it's also about character. And so the first of the Beatitudes actually shows up, not just in Matthew's gospel, but in Luke's gospel as well, okay? So the two of them, I'll put them on screen so you can read them, right? Because they're a little bit different, okay? So the first one is from Matthew 5, and it says this, the words that we read earlier on, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then in Luke 6, we get Luke's version of it too, and it's slightly different, okay? Because it says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And straight off, right, you can see that there's a difference in the language, right? Poor in spirit or poor. They feel like those are two very different things, aren't they? To be poor in spirit and to be poor feels like they're not the same. And as a result of that difference, most of the interpretation of the first beatitude is centered on two things throughout history, humility and poverty. Humility and poverty. Most of the time that they've come up, that's how they've been referred to. And as I said earlier on, when we come at the Beatitudes, right, we need to be reminded that they aren't just statements to be read and recited, okay? They aren't commands either. This isn't Jesus commanding you to be poor, right, to, to, to deliberately make yourself poor. That's not what this is. They're what some, com- some commentators define as value judgments, right? But we might say it more commonly as virtues. They're virtues. To be these things is virtuous. But the truest sense of what we read in these are this. These are the characteristics of Jesus. Don't just think of them as virtues. Think of them as the characteristics of Jesus. Everything you see in the Beatitudes, you see in him. He was, is everything we read on that list. And now he calls us to not just live out the characteristics of Jesus, but to let them form character in us. Historically, lots of very smart, very wise people have thought that the first one actually lays the foundations for all of the rest. So that's why this first one is important, right? Because it's going to lay the road that we're going to travel as we work our way through all the rest of the Beatitudes. And just like the entirety of them, the first one to the poor in spirit was totally countercultural to the world of Jesus' day, okay? The philosopher Aristotle, he spoke about humility as smallness of soul, right? So if you exhibited humility, you were someone who had a small soul. Some of his writings talk about the small-souled man, right? So there's this sense that like to be someone with humility is to be small-souled. Now we favor the term humble brag, right? That's our favorite thing, right? To humble brag. Oh, sorry, sorry I was late for work this morning. I've been up since six, ran a marathon before work. In Christian terms, it's like, you know, you say things like, I'm so sorry I was late for the gathering on Wednesday night. I, I started reading the Bible. Actually, I just read the whole thing. And... um you know, we say things like, oh, sorry, I've been away on my 24-hour fast and prayer, and, you know, so I'm a bit hungry today, you know, but it's okay, you know, it's okay, right? We do things like that. We humble brag in life, don't we? But Jesus is calling for full-blown humility. And the first way we can think of poor in spirit is to think of it as humility. Humility. 
Now, the word for poor in spirit, it's hard to define because this is the only place that it appears in the New Testament. It's not anywhere else, okay? But classically, most people find it um, as kind of parallels to how Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 66. And this is what he said. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. That's what the prophet Isaiah says is what humility looks like. Humility. Not the kind of faux humility that we all exhibit in our lives. You know that thing where somebody says something nice about you and you immediately, oh no, you know. You sort of do that thing, right? Not humility like that. It's the kind of humility that recognizes God's status as higher than ours, right? The things we sung about at the start. That all the earth will shout your praise. He is higher than us. He's above us. We are underneath the King of Kings. The kind of, the kind of humility that prays, hallowed be your name. We might say it as reverence a lot of the time. And it's one of the things I find most relief about, if I'm honest, when it comes to worship, right? I it, maybe particularly in this last season, which has just felt a bit mental for us in our lives, that actually one of the things I'm most grateful for and the songs that resonate most with me in this particular season of my life is the stuff that just talks about Jesus, just talks about God the Father, just talks about who he is. It means I don't have to talk about me in a way. There is a relief in getting to talk about how good and great and faithful and merciful, the one who created all of this, the hands that stung, flung stars into space, right? There's a relief in that. And it's also a declaration of my humility because it recognizes God for who he is and recognizes myself for who I am. And actually throughout kind of time, humility was seen uh, as the key virtue because pride was seen as the root of how so much of humanity has gone wrong. Actually, some kind of early church writers, church fathers, they believed that that was at the root of the original sin in Genesis, right? That they didn't trust God enough. They believed that they knew better and that that could be seen as an expression of pride. So in many ways, pride is at the root of everything, right? But immediately, whenever I say the word pride, most of us go, I don't have pride, right? Like we've got this thing about saying somebody's very prideful, right? They have an awful lot of pride. Now, there's this kind of nice pride that we talk about in our world, like, oh, they really take pride in their work, right? We see that as like quite a good thing. But if we say someone is very proud, then that's immediately like, like that's not a good thing in Northern Ireland. We don't like people who are full of pride. And so immediately we have this like knee-jerk reaction. If I say you've got pride, right? You're like, no, I don't. No, definitely do not. Except Pride kind of works its way underneath our skin. It works its way underneath our skin. And pride does a whole series of other things. I borrowed these from one of John Tyson's book. Pride does and says these things. Pride is thinking they should have asked me to do it. I could have done it better. Pride looks down on others. Pride doesn't listen well. Pride is not eager to learn because it's confident in what it already knows. Pride is not quick to admit wrong because it fears it might look bad or it might lose its position. Pride is insecure. Pride is easily threatened. Pride finds it hard to rejoice in the success of others. And now I can't read that list without seeing myself. What about you? What about you? Blessed are the ones who walk in humility and not pride. Not this stuff. 
But there's also this second part of it, right? And it's this link to poverty, right? And it's hard to avoid it whenever you read Luke's version of the Beatitudes. But the thing is, it's not a call to deliberately put ourselves in poverty. That's not what um, the, the gospel writers do. But throughout the New Testament, it is fair to say that Jesus seems to have the poor, the downtrodden, and the outsider in his sights again and again and again, right? It's, it's why, as you read this passage, it's hard to read it without not still having the words of Mary's Magnificat in your ears. They just come before this a short time. And all of that cry for the downtrodden and the outsiders and the least, right? That's still in our ears when we read this. It's hard to not read the New Testament and feel that Jesus has the poor very much in his focus. But it's not a rallying call to poverty, but it is a call to our awareness of need. And we need to remember, right, that whenever we think about this, okay, and we think about Jesus speaking and teaching to the disciples with the crowd behind him, that the disciples literally left everything to follow Jesus. Everything. That original call, they're mending their nets, Jesus comes and says, follow me, and it says they left everything they were doing. They left it all, and they followed him. And when I say that, I really do mean all. They left their families, their work, their kin, and they had left their income source behind. They were now all in with Jesus. Everything was wrapped up in him. He was meeting all their needs. They didn't have anything else but him. And so when we talk about the poor in spirit, we're talking about a humble dependence, but also we're talking about an awareness of need. Dallas Willard writes it like this, the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived, and deficient. The poor in spirit are the ones whose lives are marked with a humility and a hunger and a longing for the one we depend on. We sing it all the time, especially when Jamie Nish leads worship. Lord, I need you. I need you. I need you. Every hour, I need you. And the call to the poor in spirit is the reminder that we do. Every hour, I need you. But this is a problem for us in 2022, isn't it? It's a major problem for us now because one of the highest values we have in our world is to be self-sufficient, don't we? Like we literally have that phrase, self-made man, self-made woman, right? Like I did it all myself. That's really valuable to us. No one wants to be dependent on anyone else, right? Like the scornful kind of words that we hear, oh yeah, yeah, the bank of mom and dad, right? If that's said about you, you're instantly angry at whoever has just said it, right? Because we hate to be dependent on anyone. And again and again, the New Testament makes this connection between wealth and our dependence on God. And the link is that wealth makes it way more difficult. Wealth makes our dependence on God way more difficult. And so for us, in truth, it's way more likely that we come to Jesus with a middle-class spirit than poor in spirit. It's way more likely that we're coming to him with a middle-class spirit than poor in spirit. It's way more likely that we come thinking that we've mostly got our lives together. It's way more likely that we come to him believing that everything we have, we've earned through hard work and good choices. Way more likely that our lives and our hearts are self-centered. And so it's way more likely that we miss this invitation into grace. We're so fixated on being self-sufficient that we never long for the kind of sustaining relationship that Jesus came to give. We have a middle-class spirit, not poverty spirit. And here's the thing, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is one of only two of the Beatitudes for which the reward is now. It's one of the only two times that Jesus says the reward is now, like right now. To become poor in spirit is to see some reward for that now. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And way before us feeling the ache and the challenge of the call to be humble and aware of our dependence on Jesus, I want to say today that this is the invitation into Jesus to participate in his renewing of the world. This is not just a command to humble yourself and be aware of your dependence. This is actually an invitation into him today, to you and to I, wherever you're at. Whatever you might feel of yourself as somebody who is desperately self-sufficient or someone who is here today and you're really aware of your need. This is an invitation into him. In Luke 18, we find the parable of the tax man and the Pharisee. And both travel to the temple to pray. And when Jesus gets there, he makes this big, or the Pharisee gets there, he makes this big self-centered scene, praying aloud and saying things like, thank you God that I am not like them, right? He actually says it, right? And it's this big, like, holy scene. Like, look how holy I am, right? How high and mighty and proud and everything that I am. Meanwhile, the tax man, and we all know about tax men in the era. Nobody liked tax men. I mean, we still don't like tax men, but they were particularly hated then, right? The tax man, when he gets to the temple, he just slumps and covers his face and essentially falls face down. He holds his face in his hands and he just asks God for mercy. And then Jesus will say this in Luke 18, verse 14. This is the message translation. Jesus commented, this tax man, not the other, went home and made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. This call to humility, to humble dependence, An awareness of need is actually an invitation into Jesus. Why? Because the two things that we're talking about today are two of the things that were described about Jesus and how we get in relationship with him. Those words in Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' humility is one of the ways that we get to be in relationship with him and get made right by God. But also that word poverty, right? We know those words from 2 Corinthians, that he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. The things that Jesus is calling us to are the things that he became so that we might come to know him. So that we might come to know him. That we might be content to come before him as ourselves so that we might become more than ourselves. There is grace here if only we'd lean on it. If only we'd lean on it. If only we'd remember and remember and remember just how much we need it. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit because they're the ones humble and dependent enough to know how much they need him. And in so realizing, We don't just respond to an invitation into Jesus. We get to participate in his kingdom work of making all things new here and now and future. C.S. Lewis said it better than I ever could have in mere Christianity. And this is what he wrote. Give up yourself. 
and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. And you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't you want that? Like I want everything else thrown in. I want everything else thrown in. I want whatever God has for me. I want to follow God's best for my life. And so Jesus says the first thing we need to do in our character is to become somebody who is poor in spirit. Someone whose life will be marked with humility, but someone whose life will also be marked with a deep awareness of need.